Okay, this morning let's turn, well, I guess we're going to go first to First Timothy, but anywhere in Romans, if you can stay there, we have a doctrine that we're presenting, the doctrine of justification. I can't overestimate the importance of it for our understanding of the saving significance of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And before we get started, I have the honor today of being the spokesman among the many in our congregation, not only here but all over the country and elsewhere. There are those in need of healing grace, and among them is our beloved brother Paul. And that's Paul Matthews, of course. And last week we did pray for him by his own request. And Friday, his surgery, and Colleen wants you all to know that surgery went very well. It was very extensive, much more extensive than they anticipated. Took all day, quite literally. And so Paul went through quite the ordeal there. But Colleen also said that she's been unable to answer the texts and calls, etc. So she wanted me to just give you all this report since you all have been praying and maybe lay off the overwhelming communication just for a couple more days. He's also not quite ready for visitors. And again, he was in ICU for a while. So keep your prayers up for him. And of course, there are many others we could pray for too, but he happens to have the public visibility of being our Sunday school director and the writer of the curriculum for all the kids' classes. So, and also co-laborer with me for over 30 years, he and Colleen. And Colleen also said that he, and she attributes some of this to possibly the medication, but he's been telling a lot of jokes. And he's at perfect peace. He also witnessed to the nurse. She said the nurse was almost angelic course one of those people that really has the gift of it and um, he told her he had a secret about God and so she was curious and he told her the secret about God something you guys know and he's already got her interested in sending her books and everything else so he's still ministering and we're very grateful for him and for Colleen too all right the doctrine today of justification. As important as the doctrine, hi Sherry, as important as the doctrine, really, as we've been saying in 1 Timothy 4.16, and I'll repeat this many times, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. The recipient of the word has to be squared away, and we'll be teaching you exactly how to do that, and to have a receptivity or good ground to receive the seed of the word So a message can be phenomenal, it can be well-developed, it can be developed with understanding and insight, but unless the recipient is ready to receive and attentive and intelligent, reasonable, receptive, then, and it's not mixed with faith in the hearers, then even Moses' message fell on deaf ears in Hebrews 4.3. So we want to mix our faith. Question? For sure, question. Question what I say. Question it and give an answer to it and come to an insight. Reflect on the insight. 
Come to your own personal judgments. Reflect and deliberate on your judgments and come to your own scale of values based on those judgments of value. Deliberate on your own and make your own decisions. A pastor has authority in the table of organization over deacons, over all in the congregation, but he does not have the authority or the power to make you understand. He only communicates the word as a helper of your joy, and that's my whole profession. I help your joy. I hope I'm doing some good in that regard. We have studied Romans under exposition, verse by verse. I've looked at every word thoroughly in the Greek text, and I've presented it in 147 messages. Following that, we have done a distillation. I'm still involved in that. Call me Phoebe. I'm performing Romans on Wednesdays. We've gone through the first chapter, first five chapters in our translation. I've become responsible for a translation of Romans, and I'm performing it before the congregation with changes in tone and tenor, accent and emphasis, and even volume. But we're dealing, having dealt with all of Romans, we're prepared for the doctrine of justification. I cannot overemphasize the importance of it for today. I can't tell you how much this doctrine is misunderstood. And because it's misunderstood, people stay with the old forms in which they're comfortable, in which they feel religiously justified And instead of wanting to be confronted with a new viewpoint from a new horizon that is biblical, they want to hold on to their comfort zone. They want to remain in the Reformation or before the Reformation. They want to remain in a doctrine that does not really bring life or nor does it bring the Christian into a life that's meaningful. They live oftentimes apart from the love that covers a multitude of sins and spend quite a bit of time exposing the sins of others and therefore coming under a perishing mode. So justification, again, extremely important. It's thematic. And by thematic, I mean that it actually forms a theme or a motif of doctrine, an important one. And it's a thematic soteriological doctrine. I'm going to just get these words up here because... We're getting into some theology here. Soteriological means it has to do with salvation. Greek word soter, savior. Soteria, Greek, salvation. Soteria, soteriological doctrine. It is a significant theme only in the Pauline epistles of Romans and Galatians. That's extremely important. Only a saving or salvation theme only as a theme now carried throughout a great part of it in Romans and Galatians. It is striking that justification is used only as a word, justification, and I'll set you up for this. I know this isn't something you like to do on Sunday morning. You like to keep it light and airy, smooth and sweet, but this is what I'm supposed to do as a teacher of the word of God. There are many terms, and I'm going to just do the English transliterations for these, with a dikaio root. Dikaio is the root word for all these terms that have to do with justify, justification, righteousness, 
rectitude in the sense of personal uprightness of an individual dikaio. It has to do with a righteous act that was performed by Jesus Christ that made everybody else righteous. It has to do with many words that appear in this doctrine. It is striking that the word justification is used only in Romans. And that's only in two verses, the, the noun justification. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over for our offenses and resurrected for our justification. And that's made clear in Romans 5.18, our justification means the justification of all the human race. All the sons of Adam become the sons of God through that act of justification. So we'll be getting into these things more in detail. This deserves really a book-length treatment of 450 to 500 pages, and I'm very serious about that. But we're, we're going to try to do it in a li little under that. Justification only, Romans 4.25, 5.18. As a noun, the word justify from the Dikaio Greek root word system, justify as a term of soteriology or salvation does not appear at all in Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Corinthians, Philemon, or 2 Timothy. It appears eight times in Galatians where it's thematic and where justification is a synonym for the new creation, which we don't have anything to do with bringing about. For this and other not-so-good reasons, some scholars don't consider Ephesians or Colossians to have been written by Paul. And I think perhaps this is because of an oversight, the failure to grasp the insight that only in Romans and Galatians was Paul specifically dealing with the word justified especially as it's found in Psalm 143.2 in the Old Testament. We're going to look at that very carefully in the future, Psalm 143.2. The Greek text has it, 142.2. The term is used elsewhere in the epistles, and that's how I hit the ground running with this last week. It is used, justification or justify is used in other epistles that are ascribed to Paul. We looked at Titus 3.4 through 7. Maybe we'll glance at it again today. 1 Corinthians 6.11, only once. 1 Timothy 3.16, only once. Suffice it to say for now that these passages outside of Romans and Galatians stand out, not least because of their common reference to the Holy Spirit in connection with justification. He's not usually considered in that doctrine. So briefly, I'll read you my translation of Titus 3, 4 through 7. It says, when the generosity and philanthropy, that's God's passionate love for humankind, of God our Savior made an appearance. When did that philanthropy and generosity of God make an appearance? In Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. When that happened, Verse 5 says, not by acts of rectitude or righteousness, which we do, but by his act of mercy, God saved us. When did he save us? When his generosity appeared. When did his generosity appear? When Christ appeared, especially when he was crucified and raised from the dead. God saved us 
through the bath of regeneration, even the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Justification ultimately is an act of new creation by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, S-O-T-E-R, Soter, our Savior. So that, in verse 7, being justified, there it is, the word dikaio, dikaio, justified by that grace, the generosity of God revealed in Christ, we would become heirs with the confident anticipation of bodily participation in eternal life. 1 Corinthians 6.11 is another one where justified is used. Suffice it to say just for today that the connection is with the Holy Spirit again in the word justified. This will become extremely relevant down the road. 1 Corinthians 6.11, but you became pure, Paul said. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Please notice the connection of the Holy Spirit with justification there. Then finally, perhaps most importantly, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 Timothy 3.16 is remarkable for its summation of so much of the truth of the Word of God, all the Pauline epistles together. I'm going to give you my translation of it with a, a brief comment. Undeniably great is the impact of the mystery on religion word religion is used carefully here. It means how we worship and live before God. This is what he's saying. Undeniably great is the impact of the mystery on how we worship and live before God. That's the sense of how this opens. Then it says, he who was revealed in the flesh. This is God, the eternal word, the son, Jesus Christ, by incarnation. He who was revealed in the flesh. There's the incarnation of the eternal word. Was justified. What? Yeah, right there. He was justified by the spirit. And we know that that means by the resurrection of the dead by the Holy Spirit. Following his crucifixion and burial. Jesus Christ was justified himself for his own faithfulness. But in him was justified all of the human race. We'll explain this, as we already have, really, several times over. He was seen by angels. That means the angels saw him in his resurrection and announced, he is risen. Angels saw him. One angel was sitting on the stone that was rolled away. He announced, he is risen. He was proclaimed among the Gentiles, the nations, primarily by Paul is what the point is here. He was believed on throughout the world. That forms the church, which is a prolepsis or a forecast or a preview of the universal saving grace of God in all of humanity when we partake of the bread of the messianic banquet. That's what Jesus prayed in the Our Father. 
He didn't pray, lead us not into temptation. That's silly. What a silly translation. How many millions of people are repeating that today? God is neither tempted nor does he lead into temptation. So to pray that he doesn't is blasphemous almost, or ignorance, hopefully. It means don't let us crack under the pressure of the ordeal. The word parasmos isn't temptation, but ordeal. Don't let us crack under the pressure of the ordeal. That's why I prayed it this way this morning. Give us this day our daily bread is not properly translated in Greek. The Aramaic that underlies it says, give us tomorrow's bread, the bread of the universal messianic banquet. Give us a share of it today. And that's what he's doing right now, the bread of the word, through the teaching of the word by the Holy Spirit. That's another thing altogether. I don't want to step on Pastor Brown's toes. He's teaching the Our Father, but he better teach it that way. I know he's listening. He will be listening. So, he was believed on throughout the world, and then it says, this one who was taken up in glory, his ascension. So the whole gospel is kind of, the facts of the gospel are all brought up here. So what I want to point out in this passage is one, first, that the one who was revealed in the flesh, the eternal word, God himself, the Son of God, was also justified by the Spirit almost never brought up in doctrines of justification or debates in justification like N.T. Wright had with John Piper. They wrote a whole book on it, and I was more confused after reading the book than I ever was before. So I thought maybe I'd better call Paul. Get it? Paul, the apostle? No, never mind. I hope you didn't forget. So, the one who was revealed in the flesh, the eternal word, the Son of God, was also justified by the Spirit. That Jesus was justified agrees with Romans 3.26, in which it is said that this one, by his own faithfulness, was justified by God. Jesus here is the object of justification. He was justified, Romans 1.17 says, he was the righteous one, who lives by his faithfulness. He lives in resurrection as a reward for his faithfulness, obedience that took him through the death of the cross. Christ's justification means the justification of all. I am that bread that came down from heaven. And my flesh is the bread that feeds the whole world. John 6.51. See, I'm still in a performance mode. So, in the justification of Jesus by the Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead, as we see it in Romans 1.4 and then again in Romans 4.25, all of humanity is justified, as we have seen, as I'll demonstrate over and over and over again, because this is the one doctrine where people are settled and sitting down in their stubbornness about it and comfortable with it because they personally believed a creed. And so they think they're all right and the hell with the rest of the world that doesn't believe like I believe. That's the comfort zone I want to wreck. I'm not wreck at Ralph, I'm wreck at Rick. So... The other place in which justification is handled in a briefly thematic way, briefly, is in James, 
chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And I've been reading a little bit on James from David Bentley Hart's brother, who wrote a wonderful study on it. In that passage, James, the author, tackles the subject of the relationship of faith with works. But when he speaks about justification in this connection in James 2.21, 24, and 25, he's not speaking against Paul. In fact, in the words of A.H. Hart, in his commentary on the letter of James, he says, what appears to be the case is that a mangled version of Paul's gospel had come to James's notice. There's no conflict between James and Paul. James is not attacking Paul's gospel of grace. James is attacking and taking apart rightly a mangled version of Paul's gospel. So the doctrine of justification for our, our purpose in Romans is focused on a group of Greek words with the root word dikaio. The Greek looks like this, D-I-K-A-I-O-O, dikaio. I'll just give you that root word today because it's extremely important, dikaio. These words are prevalent all throughout Romans. The word justify, dikaio, just add another O to it, long O, add the word O to it, you have that word justify. It's used in Romans 2.13, First, three four, three twenty most significantly, three twenty four, three twenty six, three twenty eight, three thirty, four two, five four five. God justifies the ungodly. It says five one, five nine, six seven, eight thirty, where it's used twice. In which God says, "All that He justifies, He also glorifies, or has glorified." And Romans eight thirty three. Justification as a noun, which is dikaiosis, S-I-S, dikaiosis, that word justification, the noun, as I said before, is found only in Romans 4.25 and 5.18. Our justification, therefore, Romans 4.25, is 5.18, the justification of life to all of humanity in all of its times. That's not touched by the debaters about justification today. And so this is a new thing for us, and it's very important for us, and we just didn't do it out of the blue. I did it after 45 years of studying the scriptures, and many of those years in Romans itself, recently also. Justification, therefore, 425 and 518. Even more foundational, the word for righteousness, which is dikaiosune, dikaiosune. The word for righteousness, that's even more foundational in Romans. Sometimes it's translated justice. Sometimes it's translated properly as saving justice, rightly. Dikaiosune is found in Romans 117 in the thesis verse of Romans. In the gospel, of which I'm not ashamed, I'm not ashamed of it because therein the righteousness of God is apocalypto, revealed from faithfulness, God's to faithfulness, Jesus Christ's participated in uh, by us by grace. Righteousness, therefore, dikasune, even more foundational. Found in Romans 117, 35, 321, 322, 325, 326. In all those places, it is used exclusively of 
God, God's righteousness. In all these cases, the word righteousness does not refer to a metaphysical attribute of God, some metaphysical attribute by which God has righteousness or as an attribute. It does not refer to a metaphysical attribute of God, but to his saving action, the saving action of God. And righteousness, dikaiosune, means that he makes righteous, dikaio, the ungodly. He sets right all that went wrong. And he makes a new creation from the old. So, it is righteousness, dikaiosune, is God's saving action. So, In all these cases, it does not refer to a metaphysical attribute of God, but to his saving action. Now, tricky, but dikaiosune is used also in another form, and you can tell by the context where it refers to what I call rectitude, or what the Bible sometimes calls uprightness, or could even be called Christian integrity. Rectitude, uprightness, Christian. I prefer to call it God-approved livingness, a livingness that God approves of. And there, dikaiosune, that's where it's used in Romans 4, eight times, eight being the name of new creation. Romans 4, 3, 4, 5, 4, 6, 4, 9, 4, 11, where it's used twice, 4, 13, and 4, 22. Every use of that word then has to do with uprightness or God-approved livingness of an individual, namely Abraham, but also others. In Romans 5.17, there's a reference to the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness, which is from God, of course, to undeserving humanity. And it's connected with the surplus of God's grace. Romans 5.17, read it yourself. I held myself accountable to all these verses the surplus of grace, and to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, dikaiosune is used again, like it is in Romans 4, of God-approved livingness or rectitude or uprightness. There it's found in Romans 6.13, 6.16, 6.18, 6.19, You're getting the idea, I think, that dikaio words are pretty significant in Romans but you don't find them hardly anywhere else. So Romans, Paul's dealing with a specific thing as he is in Galatians, where he gets a little hot under the collar, hotter under the collar. So in Romans 8.10, an extraordinary verse, we have the curious phrase, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And this is tied in intimately with Romans 5.18 where justification is called dikaiosin, D-I-K-A-I-O-S-I-N, dikaiosin, zoes, Z-O-E-S, dikaiosin, zoes, which means the justification of life, justification that consists of life. What's our problem? We're dead in, in sins. What's the solution? Life. What's wrong? We're dead. What makes us right? Justification. Life. Raised together with Christ. 
I hope you're starting to get the idea. Only the Spirit can give you the insights that come from this and understanding. So Romans 9, 28, all the way through 10, 10, Dikaiosune is deployed in terms of personal or collective righteousness. Israel sought it, didn't find it. The Gentiles had it, got it, and they weren't even looking for it. In Romans 10.3, it specifically describes the righteousness, the kaiosune of God, as a righteousness that comes from God, as an action of God, not something that comes by our obedience to the law, by our belief in a creed, by our personal faith, or by all kinds of good things that we might do. In Romans 14, 17, righteousness again, is one of the descriptors of the kingdom of God. It's one of the features of when you experience the kingdom of God. It's used along with peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. All of those are in the right order. Righteousness is the experience of God's saving action in Christ. Peace is the result of that saving action. And joy is the result of that saving action and saving peace. And it's the joy of hope. So, in addition to these dikaio words, there is another one. Let me give you room for this one. Dikaioma. Dikaio is extremely important here. I just want you to get the idea, because most of you might not read the Greek text. Some of you do. Some of you even have it with you today. The word here is also a dikaio-rooted word. The Greek looks like this, D-I-K-A-I-O-M-A, dikaioma, English translation, dikai, long O, M-A, dikaioma. That means, a it has the special sense only there of acquittal, of being acquitted, which is as opposed to condemned or sentenced to condemnation. And it's, that's only part, and this is important, acquittal is only part of what justification means. So if you've got a translation, everywhere you see the word justify, it has the word acquit. They're getting it wrong. Acquittal is only one tiny part of what justification means. In that verse where it's used in Romans 5.16... In that verse, the contrast is between a universal sentence of condemnation by the one trespass of Adam. And it's important that we understand it's a universal sentence of condemnation because of the one sin, paraptoma, in fact it is, paraptoma. We're getting into the territory of not only Romans 5:16 but 17, 18, and 19. Paraptoma, that's a misstep. This is the right step. One misstep by Adam brought a sentence of universal condemnation to the human race. That's the whole point of Romans 5, where Paul says, as one sin brought a universal sentence of condemnation, one righteous act, the obedience of Christ to the death of the cross, followed by his resurrection, brought a universal sentence of acquittal. That's not found in any debate I have about, read about justification. They want to know whether it's an imputation of righteousness. It is not really that. 
or whether it is the righteousness that's given to somebody who obeys the law. Of course it's not that. Or the righteousness that God gives to somebody who's good enough to believe in Jesus Christ. It's not that either. It's the act of Jesus Christ that justifies all of humanity. It brings a universal sentence of acquittal. All sinned and keep coming short of the glory of God, being justified, same all, by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you don't get the point through exposition, if you don't get the point through distillation, please get the point through the doctrine taught by the Holy Spirit, not by me. So, I can't explain to you or emphasize enough the importance of this doctrine. It wasn't gotten right by the reformers. It wasn't gotten right by the Catholic Church, by the Protestant Church. It wasn't gotten right by me until recently where we're seeing it, I think, in a little better light. In addition to these Dikaio words, then, there is this Dikaio, which has to do with a sentence of universal justification. And that means... Jesus Christ, one man, one righteous act, brings about a sentence of universal justification to all the sons of Adam. And I'll be explaining where that comes from. Psalm 14.2, notably, and 53.2 in the Hebrew text. And Yahweh surveyed in a single sweeping survey, seeing all of humanity in all of its times as one contemporaneous group. And he saw them universally sinful. It turns out that by the act of Jesus Christ, God rendered the universally sinful human race right, made them right, made them a new creation. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. So it turns out that the comedic character from Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing His name was Dogberry. He was right. He wasn't confused when he said in Shakespeare's play, I happen to love Shakespeare because I had one wacky professor. I mean, he was way out on the limb. And he taught us Shakespeare and he made me laugh every time out loud in his class. But at least I learned to appreciate Shakespeare. In Shakespeare, there was a guy named Dogberry who was a constable. And he was always mixing up the English language. And he said this in Act 4, Scene 2, in Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. He said, O villain, thou wilt be condemned to everlasting redemption for this. He wasn't confused. That's exactly what Paul teaches. We've been sentenced to everlasting redemption because of the act, not that we committed, but the act of God in Christ on the cross. For God was in Christ reconciling the uh, world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Interesting. And he gave us that message to preach. Not a message of invite Jesus into your heart or life. Not a message of surrender or commitment or promise you'll never do sins again. Not a message of remorse or giving up your Jack Daniels or your lucky strikes or your going with girls who do or guys who do. Whatever do means. You are condemned 
to eternal redemption. You have been sentenced to justification. Dogberry wasn't confused, not there. For the doctrine of justification, it's extraordinarily important that we understand Romans 1 through 4. And we're do- we've already done this twice in connection with what we call a dialectic of contradictories. It simply means Paul's going toe-to-toe with an opponent who has a message that's absolutely irreconcilable with Paul's message of grace, the gospel. Paul's gospel is called the gospel of God, which is all about his son. A gospel which, in essence, in my view, this gospel echoes... The Father's audible announcement. At Jesus' baptism, an audible announcement that also he gave on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, in whom, and we could say this, only in whom I am well pleased. Just as he is, I'm well pleased with him. Matthew 3, 17, 17, 5. I pray that all the, well, all the world's going to know that, especially those who like to take the name Jesus Christ as an expression of surprise or of arrogant anger or flippantly. That's anything but holding the name of God, the Father and his Son, holy. Someday that's all going to flip-flop in reverse. In this section, Romans 1 through 4, Paul is then catapulted into a stunning rendition of his unchained gospel in Romans chapters 5 through 8. There, listen carefully to this, the apostle teaches and proclaims the very good news of God that the pleasure, here's the good news of God, I'll tell you what it is, the pleasure that God has in his son extends to all of humankind now who have been justified by his son's Faithfulness. His son's righteous act. Also known as his son's obedience. Also known as his son's blood. We are justified by his son's blood. His substitutionary atoning. Satisfying, propitiatory, expiatory death. In Romans 1 through 4, then Paul fights the battle, and we fought it with him for the gospel, this gospel, the very good news, against a pretender, an imposter, that advocates for justification by the individual human performance of the works of the law. So the proliferation of dikaio, terms in Romans demonstrates just how important the doctrine of justification is in this epistle. But again, except for the passages I indicated earlier, only Romans and Galatians deal with justification as a salvation theme. 
The reason for this is that in both epistles, Paul is hitting head on a gospel, so-called, that is not very good news at all. And may I say this? Paul would be appalled, outraged. I mean, kick over money tables outraged today by those things that are called the gospel today. The same argument that he makes for the gospel of God against the nomistic or law-based gospel in Romans and Galatians also defeats every message today that claims to be the gospel, but none of them are very good news at all. Prosperity gospel, the personal faith gospel justified by our individual personal faith gospel. Call it faith, call it faith alone, call it anything you want. It's not the gospel. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ alone that justified the human race. It's a matter of the human race waking up to it. And we seem to wake up one by one. That's why the only evangelism message in Ephesians, which is really the primal Pauline letter, it comes to a people that got saved just by someone preaching the message. People mostly that were Gentiles and pagans, they didn't know what hit them. So Paul says, letter to the Ephesians, let me tell you what hit you. And the only evangelistic message in all of Ephesians is, wake up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ, who already justified you, Romans will shine on you. He'll give you the knowledge of what you are and who you are in him. Wake up. Get woke. People that use woke today have no idea what they need to really be woke to. Today we have the worst kind of ideological battles and ideology is always rooted in darkness, whichever side you're in. The gospel is the only thing that can clear up that mess. Let me just, I just, there's so much more I can say on that. But I want to close by this. Romans 4, one of the biggest areas, trick areas. Romans 4, where the word righteousness, rectitude, integrity, or uprightness is used. Justify is only used once in Romans 4, 5. God justifies the ungodly. What's our problem? What's the problem of the whole human race? We're ungodly. What did God do to us? Set us right. Made us right. Through justification. He justifies the ungodly. Why? Because God's love was this kind of love. That Christ died for the ungodly. In Romans 5, 6. He, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. Who's the unrighteous? Everybody but him. Who is the righteous one? Him. What happened when God raised him from the dead? God, the spirit, justified him. What happened when the one was justified? All were justified. If one died for all, then all died. And if the one who died was justified then all were justified because all died with him and all were justified with him. The message, talk about why is the word universal so, such a problem today? Today, people take universe and call God that. 
That's stupid. God made the universe. The universe is everything that is other than God. So don't call God the universe. The universe led me to you today. Really? Screw that universe. God might have led you to me today. I did that, had a, something where I have, had that happen recently, led to somebody. And it became a remarkable providential thing. And she said, God led us today. And I said, thank you for not saying universe in my mind. But, but the, univ- <laughs> the universe is under slavery to corruption. So you don't say an entity called the universe under slavery to corruption led me to you today. No, God led me to you today. Oh, never mind. But why is the word universal so controversial today when it has to do with the gospel? When it's all through Romans and all through Galatians, it's all through the Bible. Every prophet from the very beginning of human history spoke of a universal restoration, Acts 3.21. What's the problem with the word universal when it's connected? I'll tell you what the problem is. And I was even asked this recently. Does that mean that we're, we are Unitarians? The word universalism unfortunately became famous by the Unitarians. Unfortunately, the Unitarians are the opposite of Trinitarians. They believe in one God. God is one. They don't believe in the three persons. They don't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ, his divinity. They don't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. They just believe in a universalism that is Unitarian. We don't. I'm proving that Christ saved everybody by going to every single word in the Greek text in which Romans was inspired by God and find nothing there but the announcement of the universally saving significance of the one man, Jesus Christ, through his one act culminating in his obedience to the death of the cross by which he undoes the one act of Adam that brought us into a universal sentence of condemnation. We're acquitted! All of us! Wake up! What's wrong with that word now? Universal. It's hard to use another word that's descriptive of the work that Jesus did, of his significance as a savior. And I believe that any gospel that takes away from his universally saving significance is not the very good news at all. It doesn't mean you go criticize people. It doesn't mean you pick a fight. Or as Braveheart said, pick a fight. In fact, quite the contrary. With the strength of this doctrine, we should love one another and not use this to browbeat other people. It's an insight. God graced you out with it through nothing on your own. So let him grace other people out with it. So Romans 4. And I think I'll deal with that later because this opens up a whole other kettle of fish. Romans 4 is used as the definition of a justification by personal faith. It is anything but that. Romans 4, the whole Abraham narrative, is not teaching justification by your personal faith. It is teaching that God is very pleased with a life, having been justified by the faithfulness of Christ, lives in implicit and total trusting faithfulness in God. God loves that kind of lifestyle. Doesn't mean you're saved by it. 
doesn't mean you're justified by it. He opens up by saying God justifies the ungodly. Now let's deal with Abraham. And the opponent of Paul says, well, Abraham was justified by works. Can't he boast? And Paul said, no, that's not how God sees it. He wasn't justified by works, nor, Mr. Reformation theologian, was he justified by faith. Rather, God considered his faithful trust, which God evoked in him by the promise, as something he approved. And he approves that livingness in everybody who has that faithful trust. It doesn't mean you're saved by it. It doesn't mean you're justified by it. It means that simply God approves of that kind of rectitude. Rectitude to God is when you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. When you believe God who promised to be faithful to do what he promised. These are all wonderful things for people who have already been justified. They aren't the means of our justification. Christ's faithfulness is. So when David talks about the man who is blessed because God doesn't choose to pour his, to impute his sins to him, he's talking about all of us. God didn't choose to impute the sins of the world to the world. And when an individual discovers that, he says, or she says, wow, I'm so glad God didn't impute the sins that I committed to me. And because I've received that forgiveness, I now have the grace to forgive others who have wronged me, that are indebted to me for forgiveness. I forgive them. And I do not uncover... We know we're all sinners. Did you realize that we all sin? And the worst than sins committed is the person who exposes the sin of the sinner and who judges the sin of the sinner. Up until then, you're not going to be judged until you judge. God doesn't judge you for your sins, but when you judge, the judgment comes back on you. So why can't we be a little more like the sons of Noah who covered his nakedness when he cracked under the pressure of the ordeal of a change of ages? What about the sons that backed up and covered him up? What about the son that exposed him? And it was more than just nakedness that was exposed. It was a specific sin that I won't even mention. But those who covered sin were blessed. Those who uncover it were not blessed. So stay in love, I say. Stay in love. The kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. As a pastor, I'm not a confessor. That means I don't hear people's confessions. No priest has the right to hear your confession. No human being has the right to hear your confession. No pastor has the right. No bishop, no pope, no monsignor has the right to hear your confession. If we have sins, we acknowledge them to God. And God alone wipes away the whole stigma of the sin and brings us right back into that God-approved livingness. God does that. We don't exculpate ourselves and excuse ourselves out of responsibility for our sins. We take them up with God and God washes them away and has washed them away in Christ. So he brings us right back into his fellowship. But when we expose others, we set ourselves up for some serious, I don't want to call it discipline, but I'll say problems. Seriously. So we in the church, the body of Christ, we find that we rub elbows with sinners. 
And we have above all to be compassionate to one another, forbearing with one another, forgiving one another, even as God, because of Christ, forgave us. Ephesians 4.32, and by this become imitators of God. In what? In forgiveness. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect in love. That means in Matthew, he sh- lets the sun shine on good people and bad people in your view. He lets the rain fall on the crops of a bad guy and a good guy. That's how God is. That's how his love is. How's yours? All right. That was a little, instead of doing Romans 4, which I'll do in the subsequent teachings, that's what you call a pastoral exhortation. Am I mad in the sense of insanity? Yes. In the sense of anger? No. So, I think you, I, if one thing came across today, Dikaio words, prevalent in Romans, especially the first chapters, prevalent in Galatians, where Paul's fighting a war against opponents. Not prevalent at all elsewhere. I hope you get the point. Justification is a doctrine of salvation within the doctrine of salvation. And it does not disagree with the fact that the saving significance of Jesus Christ is utterly universal. But I'll let the Holy Spirit take it from here. Take it away. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, as we prayed at the outset, we pray at the close. May your name be hallowed and sanctified through this study. And in our hearts and minds, may we set apart Jesus Christ as sanctified in our hearts. And may we, who have this insight, be ready to give an answer for the confident expectation that we have of bodily life in eternal life in our bodies, resurrection. May we always be ready to reveal our source of confidence. We pray today, Father that as we've received your forgiveness, you would grant us the grace to forgive others who have wronged us in any way. We pray that you will give grace to those whom we have wronged, that they may forgive us our debts, our debt of forgiveness, for we all have them. We've offended. All of us have offended someone at some time, unknowingly, knowingly. May forgiveness usher in the kingdom, Father. Let your kingdom come, Now, as it will come universally, let it come now, even now, in such measure that we have an experience of your saving grace and kindness, your saving power, the resultant harmony and peace among believers, the resultant joy and exaltation and exultant celebration of our salvation. And we ask, Father, that you will not allow us to crack under the pressure of the necessary ordeal and tribulation that happens now during this change of the ages. The evil age is on the way out. The age of Messiah is on the way to its consummation, having been inaugurated with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, ascension to your right hand. This ordeal, this agona, in which we're all enduring various things, May we not crack under the pressure of it. May we not crack also under the pressure 
of temptations, not that you lead us into, but we lead ourselves into sometimes. Under pressure, we oftentimes lean back into the sins of the past, the lusts of the past, the desires of the past. Don't let us commit those sins of presumption where we presume your grace is going to cover us. Of course it is, but may we not presume upon your grace. Don't let us, therefore, cave under the pressure of this world, under the ridiculous ideologies and political ideologies that are clashing today with the deliberate intent of causing anger, revolution, and destruction. We thank you, Father. Avoid it. Cause us to avoid hatred, bitterness, anger. May we learn doctrine and may it overcome our murmuring and complaining as Psalm as Isaiah 29:24 says, those who complained about life shall learn doctrine. Father, grant us, as you have already today, some discern that this has already occurred. Give us today bread that will be given to all of humanity in resurrection at the messianic banquet in the mountain of the world. Lead us not into temptation, we understand, Father, is not a prayer that we pray to you. But rather, don't let us crack under the paresmos, the ordeal, the pressure of the ordeal that means the clashing of the ages. And, Father, we want to end by saying this. We agree, of course, wholeheartedly, for Jesus Christ is in us, saying, for to you belongs the power and the glory and the kingdom both now and forever. Thank you for your wonderful attentiveness today, even through the exhortation. So three things. Go in peace. Grow in grace. Stay in love. See some of you Wednesday.